Hello, this is Shannon Kleibrink, and you are listening to the Future of Curling Masterclasses produced by Curling Canada with support from the World Curling Federation's Development Assistance Program. In this episode, we explore a reimagined sports system based on shared values, how to create a thriving culture, some of the social trends that are making it difficult for sports leaders, and practical steps that sport leaders can take to be part of the necessary shift towards managing by values. This masterclass is presented by Dina Bell-Laroche. Dina is an integral master coach and partner at Sport Law since 2009. Dina has worked for a number of sport organizations since 1991, including over a dozen major games, and was one of the early founders of the True Sport movement. Dina is passionate about supporting sport leaders using her expertise in strategic planning, communications, risk management, loss and grief, and leadership development. Hi, and welcome to this podcast on reimagining sport. And I'd love to begin by having all of us imagine what would what would sport look like today if we were to imagine a system, a vibrant one, a thriving one, where we had shared values, a shared vision, and we were all aligned and interconnected. I wonder, I wonder how we would def- define and and create this newly imagined sport 2.0. You know, much like operating systems in the 70s and 80s when when computers started becoming a possibility for people, remember, you know, the the design of those computers at the time were considered state of the art. And as we started to, you know, ask more of these computers, we found that they became clunkier and clunkier. So innovators imagined a new operating system to address the increase in volume of information and sharing and networking. And so that's my invitation for this podcast, for all of us to be open and curious about if we were to design a 21st century vibrant and thriving sports system, what would it look like? So thank you for joining me on this exploration. I want to begin by having all of us just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, why are we here? Why are we serving in the Canadian sports system? Whether you're an athlete or a coach, a volunteer, an administrator, connecting to your why is mission critical. You know, Caris, uh, Carol Lewis, the, the author, the famous author of Alice in Wonderland, has a quote that says something like this, any road will get you there if you don't know where you're going. And I love that quote because it feels sometimes, I don't know about you, but it feels sometimes like we can be chasing our tail, going around and around in circles. And I would offer if we don't have that guiding force that's alive in us to to help connect us and center us on why we're serving, why we're working in a certain way, why we're connecting with other people, we can lose our way more easily. So for, for this podcast, and maybe as a general reflection question, really defining your why is mission critical. And the work that I do with athletes and coaches and leaders is really, really helpful 
for us to connect around different projects uh, when we know each other's why. So I'm here on your behalf. I'm also here on behalf of the Canadian sports system. I am a passionate advocate for values-driven sport and have been since I first entered the Canadian sports system in 1991. I, I smile when I share that with you because it's been a moment, hasn't it? And what I would offer is in this, in this way, I know that I'm devoted to, to creating a better system than the one that we inherited. And right now, sadly, I don't believe it's better. In fact, I believe it's far worse. But rather than blaming people, I'm really curious about the systems and structures that underpin this sector, this system that we call Canadian sport. And if we are blind to that system, if we don't understand the foundational underpinnings, we can be distracted by blaming the people. And so for today, I would just love to invite a conversation around all the invisible things, the things that we don't see and yet we are beholden to. So one of my favorite uh, authors is Jim Collins. He's written some fantastic books. Good to Great is one of them, Level 5 Leadership. And one of the quotes that, that he shares that, that really resonates with me is, people need a sense of purpose. In fact, he's, he goes on to say that people have a fundamental need for guiding values and a sense of purpose that gives their life and work meaning. And more than any time in the past, employees will demand, they will demand that the organizations they're connected to, that they stand for something. So there you have it, some wise words from Jim Collins in his 1994 book, built to last. So what do you stand for? What are the guiding values that define who you are and what matters most to you? What gives you a sense of purpose? When you look at your work, do you find it meaningful? When you, when you assess the relationships that you have with people in your life, what matters most to you about them? If we can connect back to our why as stewards of sport, we will find that the task ahead is a lot less heavy. So as we stay open and curious to a conversation about the future of Canadian sport, or what I like to call sport 2.0, the great reimagining, I'd, I'd love to also get us to think about what got us here may not be what we need to get us to where we want to go next. And I find that so liberating, don't you? Really, if we have to remain shackled to the invisible systems and structures that were designed in the 1970s, by the way, right? A more modern expression of sport and such a... Um, uh, that that newer modern sport back in the 70s was state of the art. In fact, other countries from around the world looked at what Canada was doing and modeled their system after ours. But I would say we are woefully behind the times. And, and so if we can continue to stay open and, and be uh, inviting 
to a, a new imagined future, what would that Canadian sports system look like? We also have to examine the things that we don't see, but are in fact in keeping us entrenched and locked into this, what we're calling this outdated sports system. So one of the things that I'd love to, you know, acknowledge first is, is this thing called culture. As a culture coach, a leadership coach, I often get people asking me, what is this thing called culture? And so I'd love for you to reflect on that right now. What is culture for you? How do you know when you're in a good culture? Remember, if you don't have a sense of what your why is, then you are at the mercy of what, you know, Peter Drucker says, culture is eating strategy for breakfast. And I, I might offer a little tongue in cheek here that actually culture is eating sport for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and well, the occasional snack. Doesn't that feel true right now? People are often overwhelmed, under-resourced, and, and exhausted. It's a, it's a difficult time to be a human right now. And I share this even as I acknowledge my own privilege. You know, I am coming to you from the unceded Algonquin Anishinaabe peoples uh, in just outside of Ottawa. And I'm, I'm forever grateful to the ancestors that roamed this, this land. And, and I find as a daily practice, I always connect to what wisdom, ancient wisdom can I tap into as I think ahead as I reimagine a Canadian sports system that would be more inclusive, more honoring, less destructive, less isolating, less polarizing. And so tapping into ancient wisdom can often bring a cathartic experience because we can actually witness and feel like we aren't alone, that other, others too have struggled. And so hopefully you're feeling you know, that this experience in sport right now as we move towards a, the great reimagining sport 2.0, hopefully you're now starting to sense that, oh, maybe we, we have been beholden to a system that is long since past its best before date. And how might we reimagine that system together? So I want us to remember that culture Culture is our way of being as an organization, as a group, as a nation, as a community. It's our, it's our practices, it's our rituals, it's the tradition, the language, the shared values that we behold. And so if we, if we don't intentionally name and, and curate the kind of culture we want, it is going to have us for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and the occasional snack. So when we, when we peel away the layer of culture, we can maybe better understand, well, what does it, what does a, an organization who has a culture, what does it need to thrive? So I'm going to share a couple of things that I've acquired through my, my 30 plus years in the Canadian sports system. And this actually is influenced greatly by my practice as a risk management teacher and where I spent, you know, 17 years working alongside sport organizations to teach them a little bit more about how to mitigate and manage risk. And so a couple of things that I'll share with you, if, if you're thinking of what would my checklist be if I'm looking for a really, really effective sport organization. The first thing 
is that you have to have the right governance model in place to achieve your strategic ends. And it's not just one governance model. It's beyond the scope of this conversation for me to go deeper into governance. But if you are curious about different governance models, how to expand your governance literacy, we have a, a, a wonderful resource that we created called Governance Essentials. And you can go check it out at the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport. It's a three hour learning module and it really helps sport leaders and volunteers, especially it was really written for volunteer board of directors. It helps you better understand what your role is as a fiduciary, as a keeper of the faith of the organization. So my point being that we really need to ensure that the governance, which are the systems and structures that underpin the organization, that we've actually designed the right and chosen the right governance model to support the achievement of our mission as an organization. And I'll give you one quick example. For instance, we're seeing a lot more strategic or what I would like to call generative boards, right? Boards that are looking forward, that ensure that the risks are being well managed by the organization, that the organization is upholding its financial commitments, that the organization is treating its people well, and that it's meeting both its legal obligations and its moral and ethical imperatives. That would be a more generative focused board that's working in alignment with the staff, right? The senior staff, especially of the organization. Well, for the vast majority of sport organization, there's over 34,000 of them in the Canadian sports system. For the vast majority of you, you don't have staff. You know, the people that actually run the organization are volunteers and the people that are stewarding the organization are volunteers. So I understand and relate and, and empathize with that uh, reality. But what I really want people to take away here is if you aren't spending meaningful time, however small it is, thinking about the future, mitigating risks, ensuring that the value proposition that you're offering your members is meeting both legal and ethical imperatives, you are exposing yourself and your membership to risk. And that's where I think the, the we're at the leading edge of change, right? That, that, that uh, beholden relationship with volunteer um, volunteerism in Canadian sport has met its its dying days is is my assessment we're going to need to reimagine a sport system that isn't just beholden to a, a volunteer structure and so as we start thinking beyond having the right governance model in place the second you know critical ingredient in this uh, reimagined sport 2.0 is to ensure that you have relevant strategic and financial plans and they, the strategic and financial plans must be approved monitored shared and updated and and so even if it's you know a, a weekend warrior approach to developing your strategic plan it is imperative for you to pause as a, as a group of stewards for your organization and to ask yourself, where are we going? How will we know when we get there? What are the values that we wanna see reflected in this experience? And when we do that, we also have to ensure that we are resourcing the organization in a fiscally prudent manner. That is our duty as boards of directors, as staff. So, so there's the second tip. The third one, 
we can't stop there. We must ensure that we are strategically communicating the value proposition to our key community members. So a simple way of doing that, if you've got a pen, is to ask yourself who, who is part of our community, right? So listing all the different people that are in your community. For most sport organizations, that would be the board, the staff, if you have some, your participants, coaches, officials, athletes, often parents, because the vast majority of people participating in sport, in community sport, are children and youth under the age of 18. So you are likely also connecting to the parents. And then media, how are we telling and shaping our story in community? And there, you also probably have uh, a member of your community that are your funders, right, or sponsors. So mapping out your audience, who do you need to communicate with? And then step two of that is, what do I want to tell them? What are my key messages? So think about that for a moment. What do I really want to share with these different members of the audience that I think matters to me? So who needs to know what? The third element is by when. What's my timeline around this? One small example is if you're dealing with a crisis, you better make sure that your board knows before the media does. So mapping out your timeline for sharing the information is mission critical. Who needs to know what by when? And then the fourth step is how. How am I going to communicate with people? The complexity today is that we have omni-channels, multiple ways to connect with people. If we think that we're going to send an email to a 14-year-old, and they're going to receive it and read it and understand it and be inspired by it. We have another thing coming. 14-year-olds are more likely to connect to TikTok than they are any other form of media. So we, in order for us to maintain our relevance, we have to be attentive to how. How are we communicating with our different audiences, right? The day, days of snail mail and sending people a magazine every month, that is long past, so we really have to be conscious of the different ways that we can connect with people. And in there lies the complexity. It's really interesting for me as a former journalism student to, to, uh, to, to play with this, right? For me, communication is the one thing that can change everything. You show me an organization that is thriving and I will show you an organization that is communicating effectively. The challenge, of course, is that we have so many different ways to communicate with people. We put everything on our window and our window right now to the world is our website. So if you have a website, chances are that website, if it hasn't been updated in the last three years, is outdated. And it's probably hard to find information. So as people say to me, Dina, I put everything on the website and people still complain that we're not communicating. That's often because we haven't actually spent time modernizing our website and then pushing people right to the website for additional information. People are so busy these days. They are overwhelmed. So if you haven't mapped out who needs to know what, by when, how, and then the final piece is why, why am I communicating with them? If you're spamming people, they're going to disengage. If you only speak to them, you know, through a push media once a year, they're going to discon disconnect and be and feel dis disengaged. So it's really up to us 
as a measure of excellence as, as stewards of sport to be thinking mindfully about how are we communicating our message. The, the fourth point here on this, what is an exceptional sport organization is to ensure that we have our policies in place. And our policies, you know, when I started working in sport, policies could last the test of time. They were forward looking to the point that they they would last maybe eight to 10 years, right? Back in the day, we used to have quadrennial planning and we used to do that times two. So we would we would forecast reasonably what an eight to 10 year cycle would look like when we were planning. Now, if you think you have a crystal ball and you can really start to anticipate what does what's the world going to look like in two years, please send me an email and let me know because I'm really struggling with that one. So in a race for relevance, we really need to be attuning almost daily to what is happening, what's what's occurring in our environment. Policies then that used to last eight to 10 years are being reviewed annually. And so really making sure that your policy commitments are meeting both legal expectations, right? So you're complying with all kinds of things, including PIPEDA, right? And all of your safety obligations related to workplace health and wellness and your codes of conduct and your complaint management process and your the way in which you manage information for privacy and on and on and on. So at Sport Law, we probably have, you know, the must-do legal required policies are in and around 25. And then we have nice to-do policies that really help to elevate your game. And there's probably another 10 there. And I would offer, you know, making sure that you have your must do's, your legal policies in place is insufficient to meet the needs of the stakeholders. You must also ensure that your ethical expectations are honored and maintained. And the language of ethics is values. So, so you need both to be a relevant, thriving sport organization. The fifth point is an integrated risk management approach to all of your decisions. Now, before you roll your eyes and start running for the hills, I'm going to invite you to think about risk in a much more practical way. When you go outside and you look at the weather right now, there's lots of uh, air quality advisory uh, in effect. And so we ask ourselves, what's the risk of going outside? The risk is dangerous right now for us. So I'm going to avoid that risk and do exercise indoors today, right there. My risk is solved. If I'm assessing risk, I, I want you to write, write this down because it's such a helpful and healthy way for organizational leaders to be more mindful about their approach. So you're going to assess the risk of, some, of doing something. What's the risk if we do X? And it's so critical to ask the other part of that question. What's the risk if we don't do X? Both are important, the risk of and the risk of not doing something. Then you can't stop there. You have to go to the next level of your decision-making. How does this decision reflect our shared values? It is imperative for you to pause and ask yourself that question because chances are, especially in this kind of volatile environment, people are going to test your decision against and according to your stated values. So you need both and you can't stop there. Then you need to communicate the rationale for your decision in a way that reflects just that standard, right? Who needs to know what, by when, how, and why? And then you can't stop there. 
then you have to monitor and measure what was the impact of this decision? How do we know whether or not there's something to learn from how well we executed on that, on that plan, on that project, on that campaign, on that decision? So that is what I would call holistic risk management. And when we do that, then, you know, our final piece of this puzzle of what is a thriving sport organization can be realized. And that is measuring our culture. How do we know we have a thriving culture? How do we know that people feel aligned with our mission, vision, and values? How do we know they feel psychologically safe? If we don't ask them, we are guessing. And if we are guessing, we are exposing ourselves to needless risk. So my invitation for all of you is to pause and ask yourself, how do we check in with our people? Do we do employee, employee engagement surveys? Do we pause as a board and ask ourselves, how are we doing? What is our culture as a board? If we don't invest in the culture, it's going to have us for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So really paying attention to our culture is mission critical. And I'm really excited because the work that we're doing at Sport Law now is, is aligning our shared expectations by using an instrument that uh, that is called the Sport Culture Index. And this alliance that we have with a platform, platform survey uh, software system called Interlogic is really next level. And it's giving us the capacity to measure culture in a really science-based, evidence-informed way. And then working with them as culture coaches to be able to address the risk areas that are identified. So really mission critical for us to ensure that we, we are measuring the lived experience of people. And the final piece of that, you know, that culture piece is we as organizational leaders have a culture inside the organization. An extension to that is what happens on the field of play. So for, for me, I believe that we need to adopt, endorse, monitor, and measure the true sport principles. There are seven principles that describe what Canadians have said they want to see in the Canadian sports system. And that survey of Canadians has happened several times. There have been focus groups and national conversations and gatherings that have signaled and given rise to language called true sport. And those seven principles, which includes playing fair, giving back, staying healthy, respecting others, including everyone, keeping it fun and going for it, those seven principles are the DNA of what makes a thriving sport experience. And if we're only focusing on one, like going for it, we are at risk of disenfranchising the athletes, right? If we're only focusing on staying healthy, then we're going to disenfranchise those that want to excel. Those seven principles must be lived and shared in uh, equilibrium. So what's getting in the way? What's getting in the way of us creating this thriving sport organization or what we call sportopia? Well, I would say a couple of things and we've already touched on, on governance. The uh, it, Our governance system is woefully uh, you know, ill-equipped to deal with the complexity of this VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. So we need a new imagined sports system that gives greater authority and connectivity from the national organization down to community sport. And we need to have greater accountability between what happens in our storefronts, right? The, the lived experience at the community level, all the way through to the national association. 
Right now, there are 34,000 sport organizations. In the beautiful sport of curling, for instance, you have close to 1,000 clubs across the country. So if you just do a quick thought, it's a thought experiment here, you've got a board of 10 at the national level, then you have a board of 10 across the PTSOs in this, in this country. So if there are 13 PTSOs, you now have 140 board of directors, volunteers at the national and provincial level. But wait, you also have a thousand clubs. So if we apply the rule of 10, 10 board of directors per club, you now have 10,140 board of directors across the country. And most of these board of directors are tired, are feeling a little overwhelmed, ill-equipped to deal with this VUCA world. Our current structure was never designed to deal with this level of complexity. And remember, you are organizations. You are beholden to the same kind of legal and moral expectations as any organization. We cannot use the excuse that we are volunteers only, right? So we need to refresh, press a, a reboot on our, our depleted and exhausted and fractured system and allow, as part of Sport 2.0, a new imagining. And that's the conversation I want to be in. I'm curious, what conversation do you want to be in? How might you contribute to that great new reimagining? In a post-pandemic way, I would say mental health is definitely, I'm not sure it's on the rise. <laughs> it's always been there. It's been there in spades. I myself work in, in the health profession field when I'm not serving in sport as a leadership coach and death doula. So I accompany people in their end of life care and, and support the bereaved. And so I can tell you that mental health has been an issue for a moment now. What was, what was more prominent though is the great disruption, right? The, the pandemic has, has allowed us or invited us to not avert our gaze, to be more aware and empathic with situations uh, that are arising that are compromising our mental and emotional health. We need to do better. And because of that, these volunteers that want to volunteer are feeling fractured. It's difficult enough to work and be a present parent and member of a family. It's even harder now to divide ourselves the way we used to, right? When life wasn't so complex. That also leads to a clash of values. You know, we are working, there are multiple generations working together in these systems, in these organizations. And the values of the next generation, I have three children that are adults now, they are, their values are quite different than the ones that we grew up with. You know that to be true. Diversity now is not a luxury. It's a moral imperative. And the next generation is demanding that we have more diversity of thought, of age, of ethnicity, of background, religious belief, sexual orientation. For them, it is a normal, natural, healthy way for us to be together in a collective melting pot of ideas where diversity becomes a strength, right? Not just performative. And, and with diversity comes tension. And our ability, as, as I'd say, as Canadians, to be with healthy tension our muscles are weaker in that area. We tend to want to avoid conflict. And, and I say we need new muscles to be in generative tension. Oh, you don't see the world the way I do. 
teach me. How do you see the world? How can I catch up and maybe meet you somewhere differently than in my entrenched worldview? If we can't have the capacity to be with tension in a healthy way, we are exposing ourselves to unnecessary conflict, which ripens the environment for maltreatment, right? So that in this continuum between generative healthy tension and maltreatment, there's a, a giant world in between. But too often when I'm called in to do work, I'm being asked to deal with people who are behaving badly, right? We have an acronym for it, PBB, people behaving badly. But if you ask those people, they're not trying to behave badly. They're trying to live into their values and do the best they can in a system that is toxic and a system that's outdated. So an invitation for us to acknowledge that. Another thing that's getting in the way is we just aren't managing these risks. We're not planning strategically. We're not providing enough oversight. We lack the capacity to communicate strategically which is causing all kinds of unnecessary risks. And the final thing, in my opinion, that's getting in the way is, is our shift in leadership. The old days of military command control, jump how high, do it my way or take the highway. That form of leadership can sometimes be used and deployed in a really effective way. But if it's your only tool in your tool belt, you are not going to be relevant. In fact, you are going to expose yourself to all kinds of risk. So we need emotionally intelligent leaders and emotional intelligence is a muscle. It's in us to give, but we have to learn how to access the muscle. And we can't be emotionally intelligent with other people if we don't know ourselves first, which is why for the better part of the last decade, I've been spending a lot more time on cultivating a management philosophy called management by values. Went back to university, did a whole thesis, a master's degree in applied health sciences with a specialization in sport management and focused on a management philosophy called management by values. And that management philosophy speaks to what I just shared with you. It moves us beyond management by instruction where we would say jump and our people would say how high, it moves us beyond management by objective where we are knee deep in management or neck deep in management by objective right now. We planned to do something. And I would offer just because we plan to do it doesn't mean it's going to be relevant tomorrow. Our world is changing faster than we can keep up with it. So management by values allows us to deploy management by instruction, management by objectives, but it grounds everything in our shared values. It allows us to be more flexi-flexi and adaptable. It offers a much more humanistic orientation to how we show up in the world. So management by values is, is the language of culture. And as we know, culture needs shared values to be able to connect with the people inside the culture. So management by values evaluates how well are my values being lived in this organization, on this team, in the board. And if we aren't managing and we aren't by values and we aren't measuring more than money and medals, we are missing out on the moment to maintain our relevance. So I would invite everyone who's listening to be moving towards management by values. 
I've written a handbook on this for Canadian sport leaders. So if you're curious about this, let me just say it is intuitive. When we manage my, by values, we increase productivity because people are often happier in environments where they feel seen, heard, and valued. It attracts the right people for your particular bus, right? We, we have a sense, a shared sense of where we're going. And we, we've talked about the values that matter to us. So we, we attract these highly competent people. More importantly, we retain them. Your best recruitment strategy is your retention strategy. We intentionally curate the strong and resilient learning culture where we can adapt with this increasingly volatile and complex environment. Right. It helps us navigate. And we do that by stimulating creativity. You know, you're, you're dealing with a massive issues and you pause and you ask ourselves, we must ensure that our decision reflects our values. How are we going to do that? I don't know. Well, let's try and figure this out together, shall we? It's also more asset based or strength based. Managing risk can feel daunting at times because we're like we're like digging down and to ensure that the bad thing isn't going to happen. When we invite values into the conversation, creativity emerges because the values is the language of hope and possibility and what we want more of. So it does stimulate creativity and creativity is what is needed to disrupt this VUCA world that I spoke to earlier. Values is also the language of your brand. What do you stand for as an organization, as a club? right? As a person, when I do the values work, I first start with people. What are your core values? What do you stand for? What matters to you? What do you hope people will say about you when you've died? What do you want on your epitaph? Might sound morbid, but for me as a death doula, I lean into that because when you live your life knowing you're going to die, when we live our lives in a way that aligns with our values, we show up differently. People want to be around us. And we feel like we're living a purpose-driven life. The same is true for the organizations. And then finally, when we manage by values, our communication is more on online with who we are and what we stand for. And conceivably and hopefully, those values were curated together. That language was co-created with your people. So now they're kind of doubling down on these values of respect and integrity and accountability and transparency right? And joy and love and passion because they were part of the conversation. Remember, people aren't going to remember what you said or did. They're going to remember how you made them feel. And when you talk the language of values, you are hitting someone's emotional space. That is an emotionally intelligent move, right? So I, I won't go into in this is podcast. It's probably a bit too heady for me to share with you some of the more detailed, um, specifics of how to assess where you're at as an organization. If you're curious, I write about this in the book, but it's not a complex task, right? You just pause and you ask yourself, how are we living our values? Do we know them? Do we even have them defined and identified, right? Are they are they values that might be identified and and defined, but it's leadership contingent. So they're not really embedded in the soul of the organization. So we're exposing ourselves because too often when great, great leaders leave, those values leave too. And then you're, you're kind of beholden to the next leadership that is coming your way. So to really embed those values in an intrinsic level where you institutionalize them, that is the edge for Canadian sport, in my opinion. 
we need to ensure that those values are infused at all levels of the organization, in the hiring practice, in the termination practice, by the way, right? I was hired recently by a company to help guide someone. They they terminated the, the employee's position, but they really wanted to do so in a way that aligned with their values. So that person got three coaching hours with me and reached out to me actually uh, a few weeks later to say that she was really grateful for the experience and it helped provide clarity on what she wants to do more and of and where she wants to go next. So embedding your value system wise is mission critical and you can't stop there. You really need to take them external. And I would say you have to earn the right to do that. Too many times people jump over the intrinsic level and, and put espouse these values. And this is what happened with Enron, right? They said they wanted to be stewards of the planet. They said that they operated with integrity and transparency all while they were um, you know, creating toxic uh, oceans, right? Dumping toxicity and not taking care of the planet. So you have to earn the right to take your values external. And, and that means being able to ensure that your policies, your procedures, your practices, your program, your people are in alignment with your values. You do that, then putting it out there on your walls becomes, you know, becomes an easy thing for you to live by. So if you're curious about how to manage by values, you know, as we start to, to close down our conversation today, I would say start with your why, right? Step one, start with your why identify why you you care about curating language that reflects your culture step two you know you can't change the world holding hands with everyone you need though to strike a small little committee who's going to be the leaders for this project and engaging then your leaders all your people in your ecosystem in a conversation around the values that they feel matter to them. And there's lots of ways that you can do that. So you can certainly reach out to me if you're if you're curious about that, or you can Google. There's lots of ways to engage people in a conversation around values. I step three would be then once you have this core set of values, is is how to ensure that those values are integral to the achievement of your vision. How are we going to ensure? that our strategies are actually reflective of our values. We do that, we have integrity. Step four is how do we embed them in all of our decision-making, right? So our, our people, our decision-makers need to know them. They have to be like front and center. So if you've got 12 values on your wall, that's about, you know, eight too many. You need a, like a maximum of five, right? Not, no more than on, on one hand. You need to recall them. And make sure that your those values are really reflected in your decisions. Step five, this will not surprise you, communicate your values publicly to empower your people. Step six, monitor and evaluate your the progress that you're making. And I shared the, the great index that we're using, the sport culture index to keep us honest, right? And then step seven, renew your commitment to your values. So when you know them, you're going to be able to live them. It will feel authentic and people want authenticity now more than ever. Then you've earned the right to express them on your letterhead, your publication, your business cards, your jersey, on the balls, right? You can use your values and remember those true sport principles. Get that on the field of play as well. That will communicate to the parents and the athletes that you care about these, these principles, right? And what you care about, you're going to invest in. 
Surround yourself with people who share your culture's values, right? Hire and reward people accordingly. Coach by values. Ensure the coaches understand your values and that you you make true sport uh, a requirement for how they are going to demonstrate their coaching philosophy. So much of the conflict right now is between coaches and athletes. And so we need to reclaim good sport, ethical sport. It's in us to give. We just have to make it easier. And when we have shared language, it is so much easier to align around a common vision when we have shared language, right? It's also a lot more fun. And then when you're grappling with a decision, pause, ask yourself, you know, your risk management questions, and then turn to your values and say, please guide me in how I'm going to make this decision in a way that aligns with my values. We do that. We're going to stand the test of time. I think we'll be able to relate to our people, our race for, for relevance. I think we will win the race, or at least we'll still be in the race because things are complex right now. And if we do that, I think we will, we will, uh, we will, I think people will feel like we're, we're trying and we're doing our best. So, you know, as we complete our time today, I would say moving from values in action, right, to values hyphen in hyphen action is, is the invitation. At the heart of conflict is a misalignment of values. And management by values really provides an ethical orientation to not only achieve the objectives that we stay matter, we say matter to us, but also we, we can manage risks a lot more effectively when we know what our values are. And we increase the ethical literacy of sport leaders, coaches, and athletes to do the right thing. But how do we know what the right thing is if we haven't curated this common language as our ethical orientation, as our decision-making framework? True sport becomes our accountability on the field of play. It's our good housekeeping seal of approval. It's the recycling logo, right? It's a universal framework to allow good sport to emerge on the field of play. And it came from Canadians over 20 years ago. So why not turn to true sport and make that brand part of your value proposition? Finally, make measuring culture matter to you. People often get scared, right? Dina, what if we find out that some bad things are happening? And I always smile and I, I, I smile and then I, I want to just kind of give them a hug. The bad thing that you're scared of is already happening, right? The, when we measure culture, the culture will reveal itself to us. The measurement instrument isn't the enemy, right? It's the not wanting to be in the conversation. It's the not wanting to know that's actually the enemy. So when we measure culture, at least my experience with the clients we've done this with, they're feeling freer because they knew this. Nobody's shocked at what they found. And then what can happen is now that you have the data, you can turn to the data and make a compelling case for no longer averting your gaze, of leaning in, of addressing the things that are keeping you up at night, now you have the evidence, right? See if that feels true for you. So, you know, as we, as we say goodbye, I just want to acknowledge all of you who took some time out today of your very busy schedule to have a listen. 
I love hearing from people. So if you do want to connect with me, you can at D B LaRoche, L-A-R-O-C-H-E at sportlaw.ca. I'd really love to hear, you know, how this landed for you and what sparks for you as a result of, of this conversation. So remember, if not you, then who, and if not now, then when.